This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, Joe Simidian, a California state senator, and Mike Kurt, a professor emeritus at the Stanford School of Education, discuss the problems and promises of financing California's K-12 schools from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Welcome to the Fall Coverly Lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek, Dean of the School of Education. We're fortunate to have with us two exceptional people today who will be discussing the problems and prom promises we hope we're, I'm going to underline promises for financing of California's K-12 schools. State Senator Joe Simidian represents the 11th District of San Mateo, San, Santa Clara, and Santa Cruz counties, and Mike Kirst, Professor Emeritus of Education here at Stanford. Before I begin, I just want to thank you all for coming and spending an evening with us. We couldn't find two more informed people on this critical topic. Senator Simidian was elected in November 2004 to represent the 11th District. His career in public service includes positions as a state assembly member, member of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors, mayor of the city of Palo Alto, and president of the Palo Alto School Board. He serves on several Senate committees, including the Education Committee and the Budget Subcommittee on Education. So I guess that makes him an expert on school finance. Mike Kirst has been Professor of Education and Business Administration at Stanford since 1969. He's published articles on the politics of curriculum, school finance, and education reform policies. He's authored no fewer than 10 books recently, Political Dynamics of American Education. We forgot to get copies out front, Mike, but uh, you can get them on, uh, at your local uh, bookstore. Mike served as member of the California State Board of Education from 1975 to 1982 and as its president from 1977 to 1981. Most important, Mike is our close friend and colleague, and we're greatly relieved, Mike, to see that you still want to hang out with us, even though with your new emeritus status, you don't really have to. So we are really lucky to have these two gentlemen to share their thoughts with us tonight. It's my pleasure to introduce Senator Simidian and Professor Kirst. Thank you. Go ahead. Well, let me begin by applauding your commitment and questioning your judgment. Uh, it is a beautiful day on the peninsula. Uh, you could be anywhere doing anything uh, on a campus that is uh, rich with activity and uh, you have chosen to spend your evening with two guys who are going to talk about public school finance. Uh, and I often say uh, I have only in my district moments, and this is one of them. I can't imagine being uh, in most other parts of the state, quite frankly, and looking out uh, into a group this size uh, who is this keen to talk about this topic. Uh, so thank you again for being here, and um, we're going to give it a go. Uh, we could make it a very brief evening. Uh, we could just say, all right, what would an ideal system of school funding look like? And we would, I think, probably for the most part agree that uh, it ought to ensure adequate school funding, it ought to ensure equitable school funding, that the funds ought to be targeted so that if there are limited dollars, they're put to the best possible use, uh, that we ought to be able to hold people accountable in terms of how they use our money, 
that there ought to be some ability for local control in terms of the decision-making process, and that the process itself ought to be relatively clear and simple and transparent so that people could participate in the process effectively. Um, I could just wrap up at this point by saying it doesn't, it doesn't, we aren't, we can't, uh, we don't, uh, and it isn't, and say thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Um, the dean has indicated that perhaps something a little bit more um, encouraging would also be appreciated, so I'm going to give that a try um, and take it one step at a time. On the issue of um, school finance, I, I think that the starting point is to acknowledge what an utterly dysfunctional system we have, uh, at least here in California. I have often described school finance uh, in California as the Winchester mystery house of public finance. And I say that not just because it is absolutely a structure no one would design from scratch. I mean, given a blank piece of paper, no one would sit down and design a system like the one we've got. But like the Winchester Mystery House, it's not just that it's dysfunctional and that it makes no sense. It's that every year we build another room. We add on. We invest more in the already dysfunctional structure, which means that every year we are that much more invested and therefore that much less likely to raise the structure and start from scratch with something that is really sensible. So I think the metaphor is an apt one. And I think it, it sort of takes us to each of these six criteria that I've identified that I'd like to talk to a bit about tonight. Let's start with adequacy. Uh, I said that uh, the system doesn't really provide for an adequate level of school funding, and there are a number of reasons for that. The first is um, pretty straightforward. Uh, we don't really know what adequate education is, or at least we don't have a definition of that that's generally accepted. That's probably a better way to put it. Uh, and we don't know what it would cost. Um, I don't know how many of you are fans of the musician Joe Jackson, singer-songwriter. Am I getting any nodding heads at all, or are my taste totally out of the mainstream these days? Um, it, Joe Jackson has a wonderful song called You Can't Get What You Want Till You Know What You Want. Uh, and you know we can't really ask for adequate school funding unless we're clear about what is an adequate education comprised of and what would it cost to provide that. Because we don't really have answers to those questions for California, what we tend to do is compare ourselves to other states, which in my judgment is not a terribly productive enterprise. Um, do we want to compare ourselves to Hawaii? Do we want to compare ourselves to Iowa? Do we want to compare ourselves to North Carolina? Given the size, the diversity, the complexity of the state, I think most of those comparisons are frankly not very apt. When we look at funding and ask adequacy questions, we're typically in a position where we're arguing about whether or not we're 29th or 31st or 42nd. And I would just say, you know, when you're arguing about where in the bottom half you are, um, you're having the wrong argument. Uh, it it's really um, sort of answers itself uh, in terms of the adequacy question. I think. Regrettably, we're not likely to be adequately funded anytime soon. I wish I could tell you I thought otherwise, but I, candor requires me to say I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that there are a number of indicators that would suggest we're not going to see what most of us in this room would call adequate school funding anytime soon. Some of you will recall it was just two years ago that the governor called for a suspension of Proposition 98 and was able to persuade two-thirds of the legislature to persuade that minimum constitutional guarantee. Now, most of us think a constitutional guarantee is something, you know, that sounds pretty serious. Uh, and minimum, we usually think means minimum as opposed to minimum except when it's hard. And we really ended up saying as a state, we don't really mean what we say, and we ended up underfunding K through 12 or K through 14 education uh, by more than $3 billion in that year. That suggests to me that the commitment to adequacy, if we're not even committed to minimum, um, is really a, a largely illusory one. I also think it's important to acknowledge that there's really no appetite in the state for uh, taxes or even fees. And we tend to forget that living here on the peninsula and in the South Bay because the communities that I'm privileged to represent have historically been pretty supportive. Uh, but that's not the case in other parts of the state. Uh, and I will tell you that um, when we have these debates and discussions on the floor of the California State Legislature, um, the, you quickly realize just how very different other parts of the state are when it comes to the issue of taxes or fees to support public education. Uh, I had a proposal to allow for a 55% parcel tax vote uh, at the local level rather than the two-thirds that's currently required in support of education. I have never been able to get a single Republican vote on that bill. I asked one of my colleagues who I would characterize as a moderate Republican 
pro-education uh, and a generally, you know, sort of fine colleague, you know, why can't I get your vote on the bill? And he said, well, because it's a pro-tax vote. And I said, no, wait, let me see if I understand this. I want you to vote to put a measure on the ballot which would allow the public to decide if the local public could decide by still a supermajority what to do with their own money. And that's a pro-tax vote. And he said, absolutely, I can't cast that vote. No one in my party can. So it gives you some sense of just sort of how dire the prospects are when it comes to those issues. Um, bad news for next year, structural deficit, uh, which is a euphemism for problems that we never quite hunker down and solve, uh, probably four to five billion dollars, which means that uh, unlike this year where we were frankly rescued by a healthy economy with some one-time only revenues, um, the expectation is that we'll be right back in the soup again uh, come January when the governor announces his proposed budget. So I don't anticipate an easy year as we move forward. And the fact that California is one of only three states in the nation that requires a two-thirds vote in order to pass a budget means it's that much tougher for us to sort of rally together um, the votes we need in order to put adequate funding uh, in place for California. Now, on the issue of equitable funding, um, equity is, of course, in the eye of the beholder. One of the great ironies of the Serrano versus Priest court case from back in the early 70s is that it was, in theory, designed to make sure that there was a measure of equity in our school finance system, that one kid didn't end up with a substantially better chance uh, at an adequate education uh, because of the property tax wealth of his community as compared or contrasted with another community just down the road. The great irony, of course, is that by leveling down rather than leveling up, what we may have shared is an equal lack of opportunity almost across the board, which I don't think was what we were talking about when we talked about equity. But I think we sometimes make the mistake in this discussion of thinking that equitable and equal are the same two words, and they are not. I would make the case that equitable funding and equal funding are very different things indeed. And I struggle with this as someone who represents a high cost of living area because you know the same revenue limit per pupil carries you a whole lot farther in Redding than it does here in Palo Alto, California. Um, now, imagine, however, the reaction I get from my colleagues when I make the pitch that we ought to have some sort of uh, acknowledgement of that and there ought to be an adjustment in our funding that it would be equitable uh, to send a little bit more money to my district uh, because starter homes that are three bedrooms and two baths cost a million dollars. I don't get a lot of sympathy for that view from the folks from other parts around the state. Uh, so the other equity issues I would mention just in passing, we say one thing but fund another. We have state and federal mandates that say special education absolutely is a priority. These youngsters have rights. Do the state and federal governments then send the money that are commensurate with the requirements uh, and the things that we say that we value? Of course we don't, uh, and that's been a long-running challenge. Uh, and part of the problem, I would conclude on the equity issue, is that we fund programs and districts rather than kids or schools. If we really wanted to be more equitable, we would be talking about how we're going to fund kids and schools rather than programs and districts. And by that I mean, you know, if we, if we fund low-performing schools and we have a program to fund low-performing schools, what does that do for the low-performing student who doesn't happen to be going to a low-performing school? Answer, not an awful lot. If we send what we think of as a relatively equitable amount of money per pupil to one district, but there are 30 schools in that district and that local board makes decisions about inequitable funding levels between and among those schools in that community, where are we at that point? Uh, I did a, a little bill last year that I had fun with, Senate Bill 687, that's going to require that school accountability report cards identify what the average spending is, not per, per child in the district, but for each school within the district, so that if there are significant funding disparities between one school and another, people will be able to ask the intelligent question, why? And in some cases, there'll be very good reasons, and in others, there'll be very uncomfortable conversations. But I think those are conversations that we have to have. Uh, if we were really working with a, with a system that worked, we'd say, all right, given limited resources, and we've acknowledged that, we'd be able to target them in a way that we knew was effective. Well, we can't do that. We can't do that for a variety of reasons, um, mostly because we really haven't gotten serious about evaluating the effectiveness of the programs that we spend billions on, and I mean billions, in the state of California. Um, evaluation is tough. It costs money, which means that that's money we aren't going to spend on kids because we're spending it on evaluation. 
Uh, it requires a certain kind of expertise, which is not always readily available, uh, either at the state level or in individual schools, which is why it's important that there's a place called Stanford University, by the way. It also means if you do meaningful evaluation that you're going to conclude some things didn't work and weren't worth the money. And most of the legislators I know don't really want to hear that after they voted for a particular program over a series of years. Uh, and most of the school districts that I work with, respectfully, don't really want to have to confront the fact that maybe they've made spending choices that haven't been terribly effective over the years or decades uh, of the past. Um, but the real problem is we don't have the data to do the job. We don't have an individual student identifier for kids in California. So we've got six million kids who are moving through our system at any one time, and yet we don't really have the ability to say, well, these 5,000 kids went through class size reduction and these 5,000 didn't. Was there any difference? These 5,000 kids had the benefit of teachers who went through staff development. These 5,000 kids didn't. Was there any difference? Because if we're going to spend billions on staff development programs, it would be nice to know that it actually had some impact in the classroom. I happen to be a supporter of uh, staff development. It's not a particularly flashy topic, by the way, uh, in Sacramento, but it would be helpful to me to be able to demonstrate to somebody that it actually made a difference in the classroom. Similarly, we have not historically had uh, a statewide teacher database, even as we speak. Um, this year, Senate Bill 1614, which I authored, establishes for the first time a statewide teacher database so that we can ask ourselves the same kind of questions. If these 2,000 teachers went through the staff development program, are they getting better results than these 2,000 teachers who didn't? But absent that data, we aren't really in a position to target the very limited resources that we have. Accountability. Well, let me ask, let me ask for a little audience participation here. How many of you think that the kid in the classroom actually bears some accountability for his or her success in the classroom? Show of hands. Okay. How many of you think that the parent bears some responsibility and has some accountability? Okay. How many of you think that the teacher is really sort of the key to success and has some accountability in this process? And the principal, who's the instructional leader at the site? Okay. And then, of course, there's the superintendent. Okay. And then, of course, the, you get the drift, all right? The superintendent, of course, is going to say, well, I've got that board to deal with. The board's going to blame the legislature because that's what board members do. I know I was a board member. Uh, and the legislature's going to say, gee, you know, don't talk to us. Talk to the state superintendent. Uh, the state superintendent's going to say he has limited ability to appoint anybody in that vast bureaucracy. And by the way, the court took away all of his authority anyway, and now it resides with the State Board of Education. And the state board's going to say, hey, talk to the governor. Uh, after all, he's the guy with the line item veto, and he appointed a secretary for education who's apparently making policy, notwithstanding the fact that we've got all. Now, if that's our governance system, how can we be surprised or startled that we don't have any real accountability for the way we spend dollars? And you know, one of the things about Californians is we're very anxious about the concentration of power. We want to make sure we don't give anybody too much power, because if we do, they might abuse it. The downside is we don't give anybody enough power to actually do something constructive and then be able to either stand up and take credit for it, or if they fail, to say, that didn't work. We're pushing you aside, and we're going to listen to somebody else and move on. Term limits have exacerbated the problem. Uh, in, in terms of the legislature's role, I will tell you, you know, if you're a state assembly member, you're limited to six years. Well, you know, in a K through 13, excuse me, a K through 12 system with 13 years, you know, individual legislators who are only going to be around for half that period of time um, are really not in a position to be held accountable. Um, when Palo Alto High School and Gunn High School some years ago uh, were both top ranked here in the Bay Area, I was sort of bragging a little, and people said, well, what are you bragging about? You weren't you know, you're not on the school board now. I was on the city council at the time. And I said, well, I'm bragging because those are the kids who were kindergartners when I started on the Palo Alto School Board in 1983. Um, it takes that kind of longer range view and vision, it seems to me. And if your view of eternity is six years, because that's all you've got in the California State Assembly, it's hard to take that longer view. Uh, we've got local boards who are making decisions that are off the books, and so one of the things we ought to be doing is looking at whether or not there ought to be more accountability, particularly with the County Office of Education. Um, easy example, what am I talking about? Retiree health benefits. Uh, and I'm not second-guessing whether or not we ought to have retiree health benefits or retiree health benefits for not only retirees or their families. I am, however, suggesting that if you're going to do it, you ought to figure out how to pay for it. Los Angeles has an unfunded liability of $10 billion dollars for retiree health benefits. To put that in context, $10 billion is about the amount that United Airlines was short before all hell broke loose at United Airlines. Different district, just so you know it's not a one district phenomenon. Fresno, 
Fresno has probably a billion dollars in unfunded liability, something in that ballpark. They have an annual budget of 600 million or so. So, you know, one way they could pay for that is just to stop teaching kids for two years and then they'd get caught up and we'd have it taken care of. But as long as we let people sort of defer to a later day and keep those transactions off the books, we're going to have a real problem with accountability. Finally, on local control, uh, I would just say um, Serrano really is bedeviling us even uh, three decades later. Uh, and I think that we have to come to grips in California with the fact that providing an adequate level of funding for every kid in every district in the state should not preclude the ability of local people to make local choices about local needs. That's why I've been an advocate of the 55% threshold for parcel taxes. I think it would enhance the ability of local communities to do just that. And as far as the clarity and simplicity of the system, let me just say I raise this issue not because I think it's nice to be tidy, um, or because I think it's a matter of aesthetics, I think we're never going to be successful as advocates for public school funding if people can't understand how the system works. They can't be effective advocates. I mean, I am eight years a local school board member, chaired my county school boards association, practiced school law for three or four years, chaired the budget subcommittee on education finance in the assembly for four years, currently serve, as you heard, on both the education committee and the education finance committee, and I am on the phone at least once or twice a week trying to get somebody to explain to me how some particular provision of state law works. What does that then mean for members of the public who care deeply about their kids and their schools in terms of their ability to be effective change agents? It means it's very, very tough because they quickly get tied up in knots and feel like they can only throw up their hands and walk away from the whole debate. I think I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I want to be candid with you. As I said at the outset, what are the chances for dramatic reform sometime in the foreseeable future? Not good. Um, we've, we've struggled, I think, in California with the fact that it's never the right time to tackle this problem. Um, you know, it's a, um, maybe the right time would have been the late 90s when the state was awash in cash, when the state budget grew by 60%, literally from 1996 to 2000, you could then have reformed the system and not have had quite the divisiveness that such a proposal would involve today because there was enough money that everybody could be a winner even if we reformed the system. Unfortunately, when times are flush, no one really thinks it's necessary to reform the system. When do they want to reform the system? They want to reform the system when times are tight and people think to themselves, this isn't a very good system. Of course, that means there are going to be some serious winners or losers and then no one has the political will to actually reform the system because, you know, that's going to be a tough call if somebody's going to come out on the short end of what is already um, a difficult situation. So there is never a good time. Uh, I would recommend to you, if you really are gluttons for punishment uh, or have a serious masochistic streak, Mark Baldessari's very good book, California State of Mind. It takes a look at two or three years worth of uh, polling data in California, uh, which tells us this. Californians think that government at every level, federal, state, local, has enough money to do the job, and that if we would only use their money more wisely, we'd be able to fund the things we need, and that they're not really inclined to give us more money given the fact that they believe we've got enough money to do the job. That means that until and unless we can persuade members of the public that we are putting their dollars to work well and wisely, um, we're not going to be looking at a state that's inclined anytime soon to step up and spend a little bit more money on their kids. I think that is not cause for despair, quite the opposite. It is cause for sort of renewed conviction on the part of each of us as we walk out of the room tonight. Uh, to stay on it, to get with the program, to take up a career in uh, public education, if that's uh, part of the sort of choice uh, that some of the students here are looking to make. Uh, I don't want to send you out of here thinking, I'm not going down that path, quite the opposite. I want to send you out of here thinking, you know what, kids and schools in this state need my help because they do. Uh, and I think what we have to do is commit ourselves to incremental progress so that as we continue to try for a big picture reform, we make progress where and when we can. It is possible. It has been done. It will be done in the future. And I, I want to close with this. This is, as I teased you a little bit uh, when we started, a pretty wonky subject. Uh, I mean, you've got you know, a couple hundred people who said, sure, I'm going to run over and listen to a couple people talk about school finance. Why? Um, well, for reasons that really matter. Uh, 
I think that to the extent we hold ourselves out as a society of equal opportunity, our public schools are still the greatest force we have to make that real. Um, you know, my grandparents came over on the boat. Uh, they were simple people, grade school education equivalent from Armenia. The one, my grandfather was a tailor. My grandmother was a seamstress. They had a two-room tailor shop in New York. They not only worked there, they lived there. They raised my father and his sister there. Uh, and, you know, my father then could go to school on the GI Bill. His son, that would be me. Uh, could then uh, not only get a good college education because I had a great school system here in Palo Alto, but I could go on and get not one but two degrees at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, which, then, which then meant I was well enough educated to come and get a master's at Stanford University. <laughs> but that's what public education does for us. And I, and I tell you that story not because my story is special or unique, but precisely because it isn't, because there are scores of you who have similar stories. And if we walk away from this sometimes not very appealing debate, discussion, challenge, then we walk away from what this state and this nation are really all about, which is providing that kind of opportunity. If we walk away from the challenge, it means that the kids who are going to school right here, right now, who can't wait for a dramatic reform, aren't going to be able to compete for the high-wage, high-skill jobs that are increasingly what makes this valley go. If we walk away from the challenge or the debate, I frankly think that it's a question not just of economic viability, but of global security. We used to think that our knowledge jobs were secure. They're not. You know they've been offshore. You know they've been outsourced. Um, when we're talking about Iran and North Korea as nuclear powers because they have the education and expertise necessary to be nuclear powers, then all of a sudden, these issues that we've discussed tonight take on global importance, and they are matters not only of opportunity and economic viability, but of global security. And that's why I think it was important that you were here tonight, and I hope you think you benefited from the time you spent with Mr. Kirsten and myself. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to uh, take some remarks that really build on what Joe had. Uh, I think the debate in school finance nationally and I think in California is shifting a bit uh, from where it's been. And so I'm going to pick up on some of the concepts that Joe mentioned and talk about how I see that and mention two, one ongoing set of studies and one completed study that I think uh, will help with this debate. If you take what uh, Joe said and you look at the concepts for organizing school finance, California has focused basically in the first two. Uh, the minimum foundation idea, meaning a floor under all students. Proposition 98 passed in the late 1980s guarantees, quote, 40% of the state budget roughly for education. That's a minimum guarantee, which, you know, it depends on whatever the state budget is. And a recent Williams lawsuit has some guarantees on uh, facilities and books and teachers. So we have that in place. And we've worked hard on equity. And we found out you can attain, attain that by leveling down, which we did while I was president of the State Board of Education. And I think that that has been a major focus. If you get out of Santa Clara County, San Mateo County, and Marin County, this is pretty e equally funded uh, system in California. You have 3.3% of the students in something called basic aid, uh, and you get that group out of there and some others, and you have 95 90% uh, pretty well uh, in, in a fairly close spending band. So we've worked on minimum foundation and equity. As I see it, the debate and the politics and the concepts ought, will be shifting to discussion of adequacy. We have these high state standards, but we don't have the funding to reach them. So what is the adequate funding to reach them? And to effectiveness and efficiency, I'm going to talk more about that tonight. Now that we have all this test data, we are able to discuss much more how does finance relate to these test scores we're seeing in all these schools. We could never really do that before. And so I think finance reform can be more effectiveness, more efficiency with slightly more dollars. And that, I think, will be where a lot of the discussion is going to go, and I'll talk about that study. And lastly, uh, we have begun on some uh, angle of choice in charters. Charter schools are expanding. I think they will continue to grow, continue to be part of this. And most charter schools operate at slightly less funding than uh, the, the uh, ordinary K-12 system. 
So one of the handouts you got was this uh, study that Stanford is being uh, involved in, and my colleague Susanna Loeb, professor of education, and is here tonight. The, these studies, 23 uh, people uh, are going to be work from all over the country, are heavily focused on four, or five, four different ways to look at adequacy of funding to reach state standards, uh, effectiveness and efficiency. This study is the largest study in the history of any state on how to use existing dollars to get more uh, outcome in terms of of pupil test scores, at least. Uh, and we'll also be looking at the funding of charter schools and how they differ and expend their money compared to uh, the non-charter sector. So let me expand on that a little bit. I won't spend any time on this because Joe covered it. Here's the current school finance system. Uh, it has huge amounts of problems. Joe discussed the lack of rationale and the complexity. It is largely, it has strong elements of equity, uh, not many of adequate. It's uh, historically just a, a mild accretion, and it's pretty highly centralized. Now let me talk about some ways of, that we traditionally have thought about finance and then contrast that as, with some of the, of the efficiency and adequacy ideas. If you look at the way schools are funded uh, in California, and this pretty much looks around, this is your elementary school, Typically, we've been paying for these kinds of inputs, and the budget goes, you know, how many more teachers do you want? How much more do you want to spend on books? How much more do you want to spend on transportation? And so on. And it doesn't really talk about how does all this relate to how pupils are doing? Uh, and what would we spend our money on that would lead to more pupil attainment? So as you can see here, the teachers only get about 50% of the total uh, of money spent in the system. But these other functions are important as well and uh, support the system in various ways. One trade-off we've been making in school finance is to cut instructional aids, which were almost up to 5% of the budget when this study was done, which is uh, about four or five years old. We've been cutting those uh, and adding more teachers or sometimes coaches. That's an example of an efficiency move that people have been talking about. But we still have all these functions like food and transportation and, and, and so on that, uh, that needs to go on. So this is a way, basically school budget, school finance has been discussed of, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of inputs and you buy more inputs. Moreover, as Joe mentioned, uh, there's a lot of built-in cost increases in schools as there are in any business. But School Services of California did a study. The year before this, we got 5% increase uh, in public education in California. And they uh, calculated that about 4% is eaten up in these things. And, you know, when you look at these, I'm not sure they're going to get you much more attainment. Uh, pensions for uh, employees and retired employees uh, increases. Health care. Uh, schools uh, provide a lot of health care uh, support. It's really one of the stronger systems around in health care for retired employees. That took a big chunk of the 5%. Workman's compensation, which goes up, uh, and schools are large employers. Energy costs, and then absorbing every year 1% to 1.5% uh, or more are what are known as step and column increases. These are the increases in the salary schedule that school districts must pay out because the, the teacher's salary schedule must, under their uh, contracts and under tradition, pays more for the uh, number of years of service and the number of credits beyond the BA. And the last time we revised the teacher salary schedule in America was 1924, when we equalized the females with the men. So we have not rethought this compensation system in any significant way since the 20s. So these have been considered givens. You know, this is the way it runs. This is finance. So uh, to get anywhere, you need to move forward on these dimensions. So that year, we actually got 1% of the new money roughly across the state in the ground for perhaps uh, as I would say, beyond these functions, and you can argue, well, all of these increase achievement, but I'm not so sure in that regard. So now let's look at another study, which was the handout that, uh, that I gave you, and this is a study that EdSource did with three professors at Stanford, myself and Ed Hartle and Sean Reardon, researchers at UC Berkeley, uh, and uh, the American Institutes for Research, AIR, which several of their people are here tonight. 
Okay, you look at, we looked at schools in the 25th to 35th percentile band with socioeconomic background. And we have all these indicators. And we found a 250-point spread on the pupil outcome measure called API on these schools which have roughly similar pupil backgrounds, pretty similar pupil backgrounds. And we did a large survey of, uh, of the 25th to 35th percentile only, so one has to be careful about and should be extending this beyond that group. And we surveyed teachers and principals and interviewed superintendents. And we looked at the whole range of schools and tried to distinguish through very exotic uh, multiple correlation and statistical uh, uh, techniques uh, why, this, why some schools were doing much better than others. And they were doing much. There were schools that, when you look at that, there were schools that like, you know, in a band like that in terms of achievement all over the lot within this area. All of these schools were basically spending at the California revenue limit. You don't get many basic aid districts down around the 25th to 35th percentile of, uh, of, uh, of pupils. Those are, you know, people that can buy a garage at a million bucks and so on, and then you're in basic aid. So when you look at this, finance was not really a factor, and we got these much bigger increases. We found things like this. I, the handout has the bullets. You can look at these. As you look at these at some point, say, what does this have to do with financing? That's really the question. We found if the key was prioritizing student achievement, that the teachers were committed to this, coherent curriculum and instruction within and across grades, the teachers in the uh, other schools, the curriculum was, uh, they weren't doing well, the curriculum was all over the place, and there was uh, uh, not a lot of coherence to it. Intensive use of assessment data, uh, I could go on about that for quite a bit, about the, the use of obtaining assessment data, using it, reteaching, coordinating and looking at the assessments across the, within, where the teachers met within a grade, across grades. And then at the end, we did find resource availability is important, experienced teachers, materials, and facilities, uh, but uh, these were really at the base level. So my point here is that I think school finance is increasingly shifting to these issues and the studies that Stanford and, and others are conducting under the uh, four foundations that are listed in your handout are really taking a hard look at this and how this ties in with concepts uh, of adequacy. Other groups, uh, there's a business group called the Committee for Educational Development that I've worked with. Uh, they, they have four, uh, many recommendations, and these are very much circulating around. These are certainly school finance recommendations. Replace the single salary schedule. You know, Moses didn't handle this thing down. I mean, we've got to think about whether there's some way uh, of having differential pay for something. Uh, harder to teach students, uh, shortage areas, things of that sort. Merit pay by uh, various forms. Many states are experimenting with this, primarily states that uh, are, are outside the West Coast. This is, could be uh, for some kind of, uh, of payment for where, where teachers show that they've mastered a particular kind of uh, teaching skill. They would get paid more. Right now, you get paid more for any old credits that you take beyond the BA and, and, and even more for a master's degree. So forms of merit pay, weighted pupil formulas. 30% of California's funding is in over 100 categorical programs. The legislature and the governor in their wisdom this year added 22 new categorical programs. 22. We already had 100. Now we have 122. And what kind of a year is this, Mike? Uh, this, it's an election year. It's an election year, right. Uh, I mean, we got a major program for enhancing school gardens, uh, you know, and so, hell, you know, I don't know. How long have you been opposed to gardening, <laughs> yeah, by the yeah, way? Yeah, I know. So. I blasted that in a chronicle, and that came out of, uh, of the... Uh, uh, out of Berkeley and uh, the famous restaurant up there, Chez Panisse, the owner of that. Uh, that's how we get categoricals here. So weighted pupil formulas bundles these categoricals together and sends it out in a pupil weight for each pu pupil is paid uh, depending on their background and their characteristics and the money goes directly to the pupils at the school. Uh, and you don't go through all these categoricals. So there's ways of collapsing the categoricals and saying this kind of pupil who's handicapped gets this amount, this kind of pupil who's not handicapped gets that amount, and you have a, a clearer system. Uh, 
And finally, a lot of talk and need to link our funding closely to meeting academic standards. What, uh, Bill Kosky here at the law school did a study looking at the California science standards, which are quite rigorous, highly rated. If you actually added up the costs of the laboratory equipment and the teaching and the teaching time to meet those standards, they're really high. Uh, and so we're shifting to both efficiency of spending and adequacy uh, to meet these standards. Okay, here's my uh, thoughts on how to move uh, forward. And I agree with Joe. I don't see any kind of, uh, you know, huge uh, bundle of funding coming down. We did get 11% this year, uh, and that's quite a bit of money, so we'll see uh, what happens from that. But uh, we will get money more incrementally. One good thing is happening to us. The state pupils are hardly growing at all in total. One thing that has really de bedeviled California is that we have often grown at 2 to 3% in the number of pupils totally that, that we add to the system. Uh, all through the 80s when uh, we were adding 200 to 300,000 pupils a year. So that means you've got to spend 2 or 3% more just to cover those pupils. The pupil enrollment across the state is roughly flat for the next 10 years or more. Districts that have Latinos are growing. If you don't have Latinos, you're declining. That's roughly what's happening. So half the districts in the state are declining. This will free up some state money uh, to make, you know, moderately incremental increases, I think, out there, because we won't have, this is the first time in 20, uh, over 25 years that we won't have pupil growth looking forward. So, uh, with the money uh, and other money we can raise, de-emphasize Proposition 98 is the key solution. That's a minimum foundation guarantee. It's not going to get you uh, all where you want to get to. It's a minor branch of theology in California, uh, but it is a minimum foundation concept, uh, and we need to move away from that as the touchstone of California school funding. Get beyond Sierrano equity as a limiting factor. Every time somebody talks about well, we've got to spend more and we're going to have differences in spending based on these different pupils. And people say, what about Serrano? You know, that says you can't spend any more on each pupil. We have to get beyond that limit and say we are going to be able to have differences in spending. And if we get some local tax in the system, I agree with Joe on this, we're going to have to allow to me some spending differences caused by local parcel taxes if they're out there. Now, my last two are the key ones. Reframe the school finance debate around meeting academic standards. Uh, that, I think, is, is really important. And the Stanford studies are measuring adequacy, you know, as I mentioned, several different ways. Uh, and they're going to look at and come up with some range of numbers that would meet the academic standards from a lot of different techniques. That, that study will be released roughly in March. And hopefully that'll have some impact. And finally, I would build an attractive package. And here's my attractive package. More money to meet adequacy uh, and standards. A number of efficiency moves. I've indicated some of those tonight. But I think any successful school finance package should have how does any, uh, can we get more money from the existing system? It's not just all uh, that we have to have it incremental. We have to rethink uh, the pension systems, the uh, health systems, the compensation systems, and we have to rethink whether these things that these schools do that are doing better, uh, how do they relate to financing? And lastly, we have a strong charter movement and charter supporters, and I think we need to continue uh, to fund charter schools as they grow and, uh, and look at that as a major situation. Uh, so that is uh, my recommendations, and with that, we will uh, set it up for questions. Thank you. Mike, you, re you recommended increasing money for charters, but you didn't say why. Can you explain? Well, I think uh, there's two reasons. One is that I, I think that we can, uh, that parents are showing they want charter schools. There's been a steady growth in charter schools. It's providing an option and a choice for people who have had, you know, not options and choices. Uh, it's allowing us to look at some new concepts. A lot of charters are working with students that nobody wants, dropouts, kickouts, uh, and uh, people of that sort. So they're also providing new supply for populations which have, uh, have been lost here. 
Secondly, it's an important political constituency in the state, and my recommended package of adequacy efficiency charters was to appeal partly to the, the adequacy appeals uh, most of the public education employees. Uh, the efficiency appeals uh, very strongly to business communities and other groups, and the charters are, yet have a third base of support. So I think what, I, what I'm trying to put together here, and Joe's the master politician, I'm merely an amateur, is a package. When we made... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to train him to say public servant, by the way, but I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> Not politician, okay. Uh, <clears throat> public servant, right. Uh, so that, that's what I... When we did make incre a big increase in 1983, and I go back to even prior, we had a coalition together you know, so that the education community was aligned with the business community and aligned with the choice community. And we were able to make uh, some, some major movements there. I don't think the education lobbies on their own can do too much more than fool around with increasing Prop 98. Uh, I think that, or, or working with Prop 98, I think that's where, and when we have a good year like this year, they'll exceed Prop 98. When we have a bad year, we'll go under Prop 98. So I'm trying to break out of the Prop 98 straitjacket by building a package and a coalition that goes uh, to a number of sources and interests, and I think makes sense as well uh, conceptually. Uh, more than 20 years ago, uh, I supported uh, what were called alternative schools at the time in the Palo Alto Unified School District. And some of you will know we have Ohlone Elementary School, uh, which is less structured, and Hoover, which is more structured. And people were always surprised. They said, well, I don't understand. You know, why, why are you supporting both of them? You know, they're totally different from one another. And I said, that's exactly why I'm supporting both of them. I, I think on a political level, as Mike suggests, but also on an educational level, providing those kinds of choices to kids and their families is what we need to do to make for a more successful system with better outcomes, as Mike has described. I mean, we've got six million kids in our K through 12 system. Who on earth thinks that one system would well serve six million unique individuals without some measure of variety and some measure of choice and some variation in terms of teaching settings, formulas, approaches, so on and so forth? And as Mike has indicated, there's political value to keeping that group of families in our public school system. I often describe charters as the inoculation against the voucher movement, and to me, that's not an unimportant additional benefit. Thank you both for your excellent coverage of the uh, revenue side of this, and you've touched on the efficiency side as well, and I think charters are one example of at least how we can see some variation. I mean, you talked about um, Hoover and Ohlone, and I, I remember five or six years ago, it was featured in Education Week as, as, as a really big deal, and I, I thought it was a wonderful innovation, but, you know, in terms of the range of variation one might expect, it's kind of interesting that that was a national feature, that we see some variation. And, and most of the schools we see look not unlike the ones I attended many, many years ago. So I wonder about the need to kind of explore efficiency and to create kind of a, a more potential for innovation. Charter is one way to go. But in the public sector, it really seems that we're increasingly locking down public schools and being increasingly prescriptive about what they can do, what they can't do. And the teachers that I talk with seem increasingly frustrated by this. So I just wonder if we, you know, given the fact that the prognosis for a whole lot more money is not great, if, if, what's the prognosis for this continuing tightening? Are we going to see more of that, or are we going to start to see some potential for more deregulation, perhaps flexibility, at least for six schools that are succeeding? I feel sure that question was directed to Mike, <laughs> by the way. Uh, let me just say this. There's always going to be a healthy tension between accountability and innovation. I suspect that almost everyone in the room would say, we want to have schools that are innovating, that are sort of moving past conventional boundaries in terms of instruction. By the same token, I suspect that everybody in the room would say, we want to make sure that you hold these schools accountable for the success of the kids who are there. And you know, one of the things I learned as a local school board member is, you know, most kids don't do third grade twice. Um, so if we take some risks, and we get it wrong, that third grade experience is lost to that kid forever with potentially some very serious consequences for the rest of that kid's school career. So I, I don't think there is an easy answer to your question. I think there, there, that both accountability and innovation are important values in the system. 
Uh, I do think, as the testing regime shows over the last few years, there's been a pendulum swing towards accountability. There's no question about that. And hopefully over time, we'll let the pendulum swing back and sort of balance itself out. I, do, I also think, and I'll just close with this, that the increasing diversity of the state is, I think, forcing this discussion in a way that it hasn't been uh, heard before because the range of both challenges and opportunities given the diverse student population that we're working with in California, uh, I think increasingly suggests that a single system or a single approach for six million kids is less appropriate than it ever has been. I think as, as schools meet their accountability targets, they should be exempted from more and more regulation and oversight. I mean, we just have, we, we moved to an outcome-based accountability system, and we have never revised the thinking about controlling the inputs and processes. And so I think we need to, to really do that. I think if we did that, that would be an important, quote, finance reform, would free, free up more money for yeah. these schools. And uh, we ought to try and, and set a level that if you exceed this, you, you get out of this, uh, out of the, some of these regulations. So I think that the what is school finance and school finance reform ought to be broadened to include topics like that. Rather than have the school finance discussion over here, a bunch of formulas and inputs, and you have the accountability and curriculum and standard system over here, and the two don't crosswalk, I'm trying to bring these together. My colleagues that are working on the studies are trying to bring these together. One of the most important topics in school finance right now, I think, was barely touched on. Joe, you mentioned it briefly, special education. I think of the money that comes into a school district into a big pot, and we're punching holes in the bottom of it in special education. So no matter how much more money is going into the top, as we have more and more students with special needs for whom we're mandated to provide a good education, and those costs continue to increase, and yet there's not any additional money going towards that. You talk about where that additional 1% went that school services talked about, it went to special education. Special ed, yeah. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how we can raise this issue, which takes money away from some of the other issues that you've been talking about. I think the issue is not well understood by most members of the legislature uh, and, frankly, by most members of Congress. And uh, I think my, my practical suggestion, because that's what you've asked for, is to try and reframe the conversation a little bit so that it is no longer simply another in a long list of we want more, um, which is not terribly compelling, particularly in times of shortage, but so that people understand what the consequences of underfunding special education are. The consequences of underfunding special education are, in my judgment and observation, Number one, we do a disservice to the kids in special education who we say have constitutionally guaranteed rights, but then we don't really provide the, for those rights to be met. Number two, there's an impact for the rest of the school population because to the extent that that special, special education spending encroaches or takes from the rest of the budget, that means that every other kid in the school system is bearing the burden of that encroachment. And number three, and I actually think this is the the crux of this discussion, what was supposed to be a means by which we would mainstream special education youngsters by making sure that they had the opportunity to participate as an integrated part of the school community has ended up being a very insidious way of creating competition between special education kids and their families for resources and general education kids and their families for resources and each group of families and kids sees anything that goes to the other group of families and kids as being part of a zero-sum game. And so irony of ironies, instead of doing this, we're back to promoting this, and it's really a pretty ugly scene out there, and I think that's the message that you need to get uh, out to more members of the legislature and more members of Congress so they understand that it's not just another one of those we wish we had more money questions. Joe, you mentioned the hearing tomorrow and the contentiousness around charter schools. Could you, I'm sure it's familiar to most of us in the room, but could you outline some of the sources of contention, but then also how you would frame it and how would, how would you yeah. reframe the discussion to make it more, as you said, aligned? The, um, the question was uh, sort of what am I hearing uh, and how do I see this uh, contentiousness that I referred to around the issue of charter schools? And, um, and how would we reframe it? 
a uh, couple of observations. One is, we, we had the first hearing in Sacramento, and it was one of those times when I thought, boy, is there a disconnect between the view of the world from Sacramento and the view of the world from my district? Because we had a group of experts, and I use the word experts uh, in a complimentary fashion, group of experts who came, sat down, laid out sort of where we've been and where we are and where we appear to be heading, and their view was, what problem? And, uh, you know, I, um, uh, I've had a chance to talk with many of you in the room tonight, and I thought, boy, they're not talking to the same folks I'm talking to. I think in general, although they didn't put it this way, their view was there's been a dramatic increase in the number of charters over the last five to ten years. That's happened at a time when, as Mike indicated, we've already had a declining enrollment case in many school districts. So that's further aggravated the tension around charters. And it happened at a time when there were declining resources, given the state's budget situation over the last half dozen years. And so, of course, it's going to be a little uncomfortable if you have a rapid change, and you have that change at the same time that people are losing students, and at the same time that there isn't money there to cushion the blow. And they sort of viewed this as, so what's the issue? Well, let me just say, I mean, the way I framed the hearing for tomorrow is charter schools in California, what's working, what's not, and what's next? Because I think there's a lot of good work being done in charter schools in California. By the same token, this is another one of those where people are like this at each other. Uh, and what we thought of as wonderful opportunities for uh, innovation within existing public school systems are now viewed as competitors, detractors, critics, rather than folks who step forward to say, hey, we've got a wonderful opportunity for the kids in our community. We want to make sure it's available. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is take a big step back, not be terribly judgmental. I mean, I, I'm not holding the hearings because I already think I know what the answer is. I'm holding the hearings because I'm hoping to be informed by what we hear uh, tomorrow and in subsequent hearings and find out what are the challenges? What do we need to do? You heard Mike mention some additional uh, funding. Well, in Santa Clara County, where we're sitting at the moment, County Office of Education has been pretty amenable to saying we're going to be the administrative oversight body for charter schools. But guess how much they get? Roughly $10,000 to provide oversight for a charter school during the course of the year. Now, who in the room thinks that for $10,000, you know, a fraction of one full-time person's uh, salary, you can provide oversight for an independent charter that's doing innovative things, but innovative things which we hope we can hold them accountable for. So, you know, maybe a practical answer that comes out of this is that uh, we're going to have to provide an additional increment of funding for the agencies or organizations that have administrative oversight. Maybe we're going to have to deal with the declining enrollment issues. But, uh, and let me just tell you, there are widely uh, differing views about the extent to which charters are or are not stepping up to serve youngsters in the community who are uh, less privileged and less competitive. And, you know, I talk to folks from the same school districts who will go unnamed tonight uh, who have very different views about uh, the same set of experiences. So my, my hope is that we're going to learn some things that would actually produce a to-do list uh, that would foster greater receptivity and even greater success by charters in the years ahead. Let me just make a quick comment on that. It's, we have made progress on setting standards for charters and not renewing charters that are not effective. And I think this is very important. The whole idea of a charter was you got a limited amount of time, you had to show some results, and if you didn't show results, you got your charter yanked. So this, the legislature and the governor have been passing laws over the past three, four years to tighten this up quite a bit. So uh, that conversation's beginning to recede. You know, the fast buck operators and so on are being squeezed out of the game. So it's getting to be reframed uh, much more difficult for people, I think, to uh, criticize charters that they're not accountable any longer. They're getting more and more accountable. I guess there's more right. to do here. And, and I, well, and that's the question. Do these fixes over the last four or five years um, constitute a thoughtful and cohesive solution to the problems that charters have faced over the last half dozen years? Or have we just sort of patched and repaired and slapped Band-Aids on what you know, is really still a somewhat troubled enterprise uh, in terms of, and I don't mean troubled in a, as in a critique, I mean troubled as in why are we still like this year after year after year after half a dozen years of piecemeal legislation? 
You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Stephen Eng. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.